Good morning, everybody. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders here for Grace Fellowship Church. And on behalf of the elders, I would like to thank everybody who has played a significant role in helping us to come into this new building. And a a building is just a building. It's not everything. Uh, We've had years of fruitful gospel ministry without owning a building as a church. And, And yet here we are in a place where the Lord has brought us to this place where we hope to see even more fruitful ministry for many years to come. With greater visibility, a nice spot right downtown here, easy location, we want to preach the gospel. We want to stay focused on what we've always been focused on, preaching God's grace, ministering his grace to the heart, growing our fellowship with one another, and being a church that sends out, sends out folks into the world from a transient community. And I, I want to thank all those who, who helped. Jeff mentioned Bill Drips. Most of you probably don't know that, that this deal, I am convinced, would not have gone down were it not for the efforts of Bill Drips. And I, I don't say that lightly. Most of the rest of the elders didn't have time to put in the time that needed to happen to get all the right parties together. This was a four-church deal with multiple different cultural expectations and communication styles and all kinds of things. And Bill was there getting everybody together, reminding everyone of the gospel, reminding everyone to extend mercy and grace and forgiveness and patience to one another. And he persistently kept pressing and pressing and pressing to help make this this deal go down, to help all the, the church communities in our town. Uh, to help many churches move around and find spaces that would better suit them. And the elders are incredibly grateful to Bill for the work that he's done. I hope that we as a church can be very grateful to Bill. Bill, thank you for all the the effort that you put forth to help make this happen and to keep pushing this deal forward and working all the angles. We're really grateful to God for you. I want to thank a few other folks as well to take just a moment here to celebrate what God has done. Thanks to everybody who came yesterday to help us move in. We had so much help and that it happened pretty painlessly with one major exception, which was our, our mishap with the carport out there. And I want to thank Boyd Smith. He, he put in a lot of time, spent almost the whole day here yesterday fixing it. And that carport, which... Honestly, we could have had a few deaths yesterday. We came close. And now what we have instead is a carport that's actually more secure than it was before the mishap. So thanks, Boyd, for putting in all that time for us. I want to thank Becky John and Amber Scott for helping to lead our children's ministry. And Becky especially has spent hours and hours this last week coordinating being over there at University Drive to figure out what needed to happen and get packed up and come over here, and then hours here and coordinating with uh, the Young Kwong church folks to make sure we get stuff situated in the right spots. Becky especially has put in a lot of time so that we could have an effective children's ministry here and get off to a good start. Thank you, Becky. And thanks to Becky and Amber and... Jen and whoever else, if, if I don't, don't know who you are who helped plan all those things, I apologize. 
but thank you to those who have helped us to have some nice new features. You heard about the nursery right across the hallway here. We have a nursing mother's room in the back, which is a new feature for us as a church. If you are a nursing mother, you are allowed in that room back there. <laughs> Otherwise, stay out. Well, nursing infants are allowed back there as well. Yes. So uh, a, a nice space there so you don't have to go too far away and Hopefully we'll, we'll pipe some sound back there so that you can, can still hear the service and be a part of that. And so, uh, again, thank you. Thanks also to John Walker. John has taken care of a lot of the, the technical, engineering, maintenance kind of stuff for us. He supervised all the inspections and inspectors coming in and out of the buildings. He's figured out stuff with the signs and the, the mold remediation and all the other kind of stuff that has to, has to happen. And John has put in an incredible number of hours to help us get this building up to where it needs to be, to be where we'll be satisfied with it and delighted to worship God here together. Thank you, John. We're really glad. <clears throat> Really glad for, for all those that God has given to us. God has brought you here to be a part of our body, to bless us in this way. And, and if we weren't a whole body, we couldn't, couldn't do these things. The reason why we bought this building and why we worked out this deal and worked out these child care details and nursing mother's rooms and inspections and mechanical details and all kinds of things, negotiations, the reason is because we want to continue the ministry of preaching God's grace, ministering God's grace to the heart. That's why we're here. That's what we're about as a church. That's what we're going to keep doing. We hope we can do it more effectively than ever before in this new building. And that's why we're in uh, week, the second week of a three-week series about grace, to be reminded about this, this thing that characterizes our church. It's why our, our name is Grace Fellowship Church. Early in World War II, the Allies were able to crack some German codes to locate the positions of uh, the German U-boats. But at the beginning of 1942, the Germans gained a new technology that added an extra layer of encryption to their codes. It was called the fourth rotor of, of the Enigma machine. And for 10 months after that, the addition of the fourth rotor, the Allies were in the dark and getting destroyed in the seas. And not just their attack vessels, but also their transports and shipping as well. But on October 30th, 1942, four British warships locate and confront a German sub, the U-559. And as they torpedo this sub, the U-559 takes serious damage and must surface the German sailors aboard abandoned ship. And three British sailors from the, the HMS Petard dive off of their destroyer and swim through the crowd of fleeing Germans to climb aboard this submarine. The first two there were the first lieutenant, Tony Fasson, and able seaman Colin Grazier. Later, they were followed by canteen assistant Tommy Brown, and Fasten and Grazier, who got there first, they entered in the tower of the sub and climbed down and raced through the, the ship to find maps 
and orders and code books, whatever they could find to help the Allied efforts. They brought them back up to the top of the tower where Brown was waiting. And then Fasten and Grazer went back down in there to find more, to get what they could. But the sub had taken so much damage, it, it started to sink. Brown shouts down to his fellows to abandon the ship just in time for him to jump into the sea and be picked up by rescue crews, documents in hand. The ship sinks. The bodies of Fasten and Grazier are never to be found. But the first set of documents that they discovered and delivered, they contained the keys that British cryptographers needed to break the Enigma codes so they could regain control of the seas. Now, when we think of what brought on the end of World War II, we often go to D-Day and the invasion at, at Normandy Beach, which started that final push for the Allies toward Berlin. And, and that was incredibly important. But the Allies never could have made that amphibious landing or probably even lasted very long through the war without the sacrifice of those two men to get the codes out of that sub. And all three men who were there, Fasten, Grazier, and Brown, all three were posthumously awarded the George Cross, which in the United Kingdom, that is the second highest honor awarded to, to its citizens. It's awarded for gallantry and heroism while not under direct fire from the enemy. Stories like this are amazing. We love such stories, don't we? Stories of heroism and gallantry and sacrifice. Mostly, I think, we love stories like this when they are stories of our side. Right? How would you feel about that story that I just told if you were German? How about if your grandfather had been a Nazi official? In reality, we don't like the thought of being bested, conquered, or stolen from. If we are defeated and the world considers the victors to be the good guys, it might mean that we've done something wrong. It might mean we're deficient in some way, but we don't like to admit such things. And friends, even in Christianity, let's be honest, we like to consider ourselves the heroes. We want to be the strong, courageous Christians who overcome the world. We rise above our challenges and do all the right things. But what if the Bible, and our text today even, says that we are not the victors? We will be in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 634. What if we are not the rescuers, but the rescued? And what if we are not the conquerors, but the vanquished? And get this. What if recognizing someone else as conqueror and ourselves as vanquished doesn't steal our joy, but actually creates it? One of our foundational church principles is grace. That's why we're taking three weeks out to focus on this idea of grace. Grace means 
that the Bible shows us who the real victor is, and it is not us. Grace is all about getting what you don't deserve from God. And when we see the true victor, that gives us incredible satisfaction and joy. So we're going to see grace for today through three headings in Ephesians chapter 2. You were, but God, so that. If you get these six words, you will understand Ephesians 2 very well. And you will understand grace. Let me pray and ask God to help us as we study his word. Our Father in heaven, please help us this morning. Fill us with your spirit that we might see the riches of your grace and display them for the coming ages. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's walk through this passage. First, you were, verses 1 to 3. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, the author focused focuses our eyes on God and his blessings. And when you get to the end of chapter 1, it goes on and on about God's power to raise Jesus Christ and seat him above in the heavenly places. And chapter 2 now transitions from what God did to Jesus to what to transitions to you and what you were before you came under the spell of this unspeakable power. And it begins with two key words. You were. And as you look at yourself, and you remember your life history, there is one thing you must know. Because it's not until we see the depths of our need that we can see the glory of God in the solution. What you must see in verse 1, you were, you see it? Dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, friends, this is not a complicated point. And because of that, it is so easy for us to skip over it, ignore it, miss what's going on here. So we need to spend some time dwelling on this. When you lived in your sins, 
either opposing God or even simply ignoring him, you were dead. Please be clear on this metaphor. He does not say you were weak. He does not say you were sick. He does not say you were naive or hurting or wounded or injured. You were not faint, debilitated, or disabled. You were not seeking. You were not stumbling. You were not exploring. You were dead. And you know the thing about dead people? They are dead. They are not alive. Last year, my wife's grandmother passed away. And at the funeral, one of Aaron's cousins had a little daughter who wanted to send a balloon with a message up to grandma in heaven. And Elsa was there with Aaron. She was six years old at the time, and she turned to Aaron and asked Aaron if the balloon would really get to grandma. We can't lie to our daughter. Sorry, sweetie, but no. Balloons can't reach her anymore. She's dead. How does this apply? You were dead. Please don't get this metaphor wrong. You had nothing to offer. There was nothing you could do. There's nothing that you were in the process or on your way. You were dead. And, and he goes on to explain why you were dead. Let's understand why we were dead. What does the author mean when he says you were dead? He means three things. Number one, at the end of verse two, he says, you followed the prince of the power of the air. Huh. So you were, you were following Satan. Okay. Number two, in verse three, why you were dead was because you lived according to the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And number three, at the end of verse three, we were children of wrath, just like everyone else. In other words, our actions deserved God's blazing wrath and fiery justice. This is what it means to be dead. You're under Satan's power. You do whatever you desire to do, whatever sinful desires you have, and you are subject to God's wrath. How does this apply? Friends, grace for today God's grace to you today is to remind you of what you were. That is God's grace. That is his mercy. That is his favor towards you so that you can set aside your self-confidence. There's your application, please. Set aside your self-confidence. When we remember that we were dead, that we loved what we loved, that we acted on our loves, that we were enslaved to Satan and we were subjected to God's fury, we will see that we were helpless to do anything about it. We were dead. But we move on to verses 4 through 6. And I expect the author to say, but you came to life. Or maybe, but you overcame your challenges and did the right thing. Or possibly, but you learned the truth 
and began making different choices. But he doesn't say any of those things. Where I expect a but you, you see what we get instead? But God. Verse 4. But God. Remember our outline. You were but God so that. Here we are in but God. Let me observe for you the basic sentence of verses 4 through 6. We've got one sentence going on here, and there are a lot of words and a lot of phrases, and it's easy to get distracted and to lose sight of what's going on. Here's the essential sentence. If I take just the subjects, subject and the verbs, you get this. But God made us alive and raised us up and seated us. There's the essential thought. And sometimes it helps in your Bible study when you're getting lost and you so many words and I don't know what to do. Just figure out what's the essential sentence, subject and verb. But God made us alive and raised us up and seated us. And it, if you're studying through Ephesians, it would strike you that, that these verbs are the same things that he already said God did to Jesus at the end of chapter 1. Look at, if you have your Bible there, look at chapter 1, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And that's why when we get to chapter 2 here in verses 4 through 6, on every one of these verbs, he says something like, with him or together with him. You see verse 4, but God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, the point is this, that our fate is wrapped up in the fate of Jesus Christ. Such that what God did to Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, God does the same for you. This is why we talk about Jesus so much in this church. This is why the New Testament gives us four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have to understand what God did with Jesus so that we can understand what God is doing in us by his grace. So if you're not familiar with the story of Jesus, you need to hear it again. This is grace for you for today. And if you're not familiar with, with the story of Jesus. If you've not heard it, you've got to hear this. This is God's grace. This is God's favor for you today. Here's the story. God was up there in heaven, and people were down here. And the history of religion is the history of a people trying to make their way up to God to try to make him happy. But in Christianity alone, of all world religions... We have a God, the God who created everything. He saw that we could never make our way up to him. So what he did was he came down himself. He was born as king of the Jews. He lived life just like anybody else with stuffy noses and bruised toes and all kinds of stuff, conflict with others, attacks, Sickness and, and this God man, his name was Jesus. 
He then became an adult and he entered into his 30s. He went around doing good and healing people, telling people that the kingdom of God had come. And while he spent some time discussing ethics and religion, he mostly told people about himself. He said things like, I am God. I came from heaven. Whoever trusts me has life. Whoever rejects me is condemned. And then here's the thing. He didn't just disappear or ride off into the sunset. No, he was executed by the authorities who thought he had overstepped the bounds of propriety. They considered him irreligious and scandalous for claiming equality with God. But what was really going on was that he was fully committed to going down with the sub. He had to die in our place in order to pay the penalty to rescue us. And because he died, because he paid that penalty in full, and he did so righteously, he didn't deserve it, we did. Because of that, he couldn't stay dead. God raised him from the dead and gave him new life. He, God made him the, the first part of a new creation that would infest and replace the old one. And after 40 days showing off his resurrected son, God raised Jesus up into heaven and sat him down at his right hand, where Jesus now rules all things, overseeing this new creation, overseeing the advance of his kingdom over the earth until every enemy has been trampled and every square inch has been claimed and Satan is defeated and even death itself will die forever. This story of Jesus is central to the entire Bible, and it is central to all of history. And friends, when you believe this story, it becomes yours. You are made alive with Jesus. You are raised up with Jesus. You are seated in the heavenly places with Jesus. So when you look at Jesus in the four Gospels, you're looking at yourself. Not because Jesus is just a literary picture or a symbol of every man, but because he's a real person who did all these things in history on your behalf. And the fact that they happened to him provides you assurance that God will do the same things to those who trust him. How does this apply for us? Grace for you for today means this. God gives you grace to set aside your uncertainty and your shame. Because you see, God already did these things. He did them to Jesus. And if you are in Jesus, they're done. You are raised, you are made alive, and you are seated in the heavenly places. Children, many of you are small and some of you are shy. But if you are in Jesus, if you trust Jesus, you are precious in God's sight. You are alive and seated in heaven. Now, it feels like you're sitting on a blue chair in a new build, a strange building, right? But really, you are with Jesus. And nothing can change the fact that you are with Jesus if you love him. Brothers and sisters, please look at yourself to see what you were. You were dead. 
but then shift your gaze. But God made us alive. Remember what it meant to be dead. And remember that God is saying, you no longer are under Satan's rule and you no longer carry out your own desires and you are no longer deserving of God's wrath. But especially he's talking about Jesus, how your fate is wrapped up in Jesus's fate. And if your fate is wrapped up in Jesus's fate, that means that your fate has nothing to do with your own actions. The quality of your life doesn't ultimately need to come and go with seasons of good or bad behavior. Your fate is done. God has already done his work. He has made you alive with Christ. He has raised you up with Christ. He has seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. This is God's work in Jesus Christ. You were dead, but God made you alive together with Christ. Now, for the critical part, why did God do all this? Why did he do this? As we move on into verse 7, this last section gives us a major clue regarding the author's intention. He's, you were, verse 1, but God, verse 4, and then in verse 7, you see what we hit? So that. This little phrase, so that, signals a purpose statement. Here is the purpose for what God did. Though you were dead, God made you alive, and God made you alive for this purpose, to this end. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, In Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters who trust in Jesus, here is the mind of God regarding your resurrection. When he raised Jesus and seated him above, and when he does the same to those who believe in Jesus, God wants to show something to the coming ages. God wants this one thing to be clear to all the world for the rest of time. And do you see what that thing is that he wants to show? The immeasurable riches of his grace. Let me remind you once again, the word grace means God's favor shown toward people who don't deserve it. God's favor shown toward people who don't deserve it. And God wants the riches of that undeserved favor to be shown to all the world for the rest of time. You see, God is not stingy with his favor. He's not like a grumpy old man. He's not like a parent who only criticizes and never rarely praises. His grace is immeasurable. He wants to show the immeasurable Riches of his grace. You know what immeasurable means? It means you can't measure it. You can't measure it. According to Forbes magazine, currently the world's youngest self-made billionaire is a 25-year-old named Evan Spiegel. If you haven't heard of him, he's the co-founder of Snapchat. If you're under age 30, you might not... I'm sorry, if you're older than 30, you might not have heard of Snapchat. 
It's a mobile app where you can share photos and things with your friends. He co-founded it. He now has a net worth of $2.1 billion. This 25-year-old has a net worth of $2.1 billion. Let me put this in perspective for you. This means that Mr. Spiegel could decide, starting today, he could decide to spend $100,000 per day for his next 25 years. And if he did, when he was 50, he would still be a billionaire. Can you imagine spending $100,000 every day? If I just gave that to you, $100,000 a day, it's yours to spend. And you'll still be a billionaire 25 years from now. Such riches may be unbelievable. But you know what they are? They are measurable. The riches of God's grace are immeasurable. They won't ever end. You can't ever figure out how much of it there is, how much more of it remains to come. He is lavish and generous, and God is always ready to give good things. You see, some people on earth are wealthy because they keep it all and don't give it away. But there are others who use their wealth to move out and serve others. And that's the Lord. He wants all the coming ages to know the riches of his grace. That's why he rescues people. That's why he makes them alive. That's why he raises them up. He wants to put them on display. He wants to put on display those who believe in Jesus. Though they are the vanquished, yet they are now his trophy. So that all can see how generous he is. How does this apply? Your grace for today is that God enables you to set aside your self-centeredness. God gives you the grace to set aside your self-centeredness. This is his grace because it's better for you not to focus on yourself. It's so much better for you to focus on him, to see his immeasurable, unimaginable riches of his grace. God does not put us on display to show the world how great we are. He does it to show the world how great he is. He does not do it to show the wealth of our deeds, but to show the riches of his grace. And he does not put us on display to make us feel great, but he does it to expand the reach of his grace. When we focus on ourselves, we get this backwards. We want to know what God can do for me. I want to know what he will do in my life. I want to know how he will make me happier. And then you know what happens when things go wrong and life is hard? It's devastating. Because I think I'm the special one as though God owes me and must give me what I want. For example... About six weeks ago, our daughter Cora was born. And I was really looking forward to her birth because it meant I had two extra weeks of vacation for paternity leave from my job. And I had big plans. 
I had really big plans of the projects I wanted to do at home, the time I wanted to spend with my kids, and the stuff we wanted to do. We were planning to visit the Chokas' farm, see their horses, milk the cow. We had all kinds of great things. But most of you know that in the delivery, uh, Aaron suffered some injuries. Uh, The most notable of one was a broken tailbone. This drastically reduced her capacity and extended the length of her recovery time. She's still not fully recovered from it. And I had big dreams for everything I wanted to do with my paternity leave. But what happened was I didn't get to do most of it because suddenly I now had to do the shopping. I had to take care of Alana, our 20-month-old, because Aaron can't lift her up. Aaron can't drive a car. So if we're going to do anything as a family, I have to go and do it. I had to do the laundry at the beginning. We had lots of help from others. Allie, thank you for helping with laundry for us. Everybody provided meals. Such a big deal. It was really helpful. But it was hard for me because... Without realizing it, I just drift into this thinking where it's for me. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to get out of this. God's giving me this time, and I've got all these big plans. And God rescued Cora and Aaron from far worse fates. And in the end, we're here to show him off, to show off the work that God has done. Can you relate to this struggle? How would you complete the sentence? If God loved me, he would not have let my mom die. Give me a romantic relationship. Give me an A on my next paper. Provide a raise or a promotion for my employer. Give me that job that I wanted. He would do for me what he did for that other person. Why don't I get what they get? He would solidify my financial future. And friends, when we think this way, this is like making ourselves the victors. When we must see that, in fact, we are the vanquished. The point is this. We have been rescued so we could show off God's rich favor. We do not deserve his favor But this favor must shine brightly for the world to see. Because you were dead, but God made you alive so that he might show off the riches of his grace. In closing, in light of everything we've looked at, in light of who we were and what God has done and why God has done it, what now? What do we do with this? Your final application is to boast more. To boast more. That's a little strange. Verse 9 says this is not a result of works so that no one may boast. And so we boast not in ourselves, obviously, because we were dead. But we boast in the one who made us alive. 1 Corinthians 1.31 says, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Let us be known as a church that can't stop boasting about what God has done in our lives. Let us be a fellowship where when we open the floor each Sunday to share about what God has done, we have to keep the masses away because we just want to boast about the work that God is doing. May we be a church that goes digging in one another's lives for evidences of God's grace 
so we can reflect and help each other to see better what God is up to. May we be a people who see others not as competitors, but as fellow trophies of God's grace. We'll speak of ourselves as undeserving and of others as gifts to the community. But more than either, we'll speak of God as the one who does the impossible. The one who raises the dead, the one who lavishes kindness on those who don't deserve it. Friends, I want you to shine brightly as one of God's vanquished foes. I want it to go well for you. But most of all, I want God to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. This is God's grace for you today. As you think about what God does in people's lives, God's grace reminds you of what you were It repeats for you what God has done. And he gives us a vision for why God has done it so we can get on board with him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are an amazing God who does the impossible. Lord, you have taken your foes, you have conquered us, and you have made us your children the ones whom you delight to show off to the world so that the world can see the riches of your grace. Lord, help us to speak much of your favor toward us, which we do not deserve. Help us, Lord, we pray, to honor you, to give you the glory and the honor and the blessing that you alone deserve. And may we find our utmost and final satisfaction in this purpose for which you've rescued us. We pray these things in hope that you would give us grace for today. And in Jesus' name, amen.